Hello and welcome to BGS English Revision Podcast, the first of this year. Um, I'm Mr. Forster and I'm here with... Ms. Yamanakis. And we're going to discuss some Ted Hughes poetry. So before we look at Harvest Moon, which is our question for today, um, I thought we'd start by talking through a little bit about the exam, some of the practical things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is your first podcast. Most of you are still only in the first um, half term of year 10. Um, so you might be thinking, I have no idea how this is going to work. Um, and we can reassure you that it's actually um, reasonable. Well, is it straightforward? Yes and no. Um, what you will have in the exam always um, is a choice of two Ted Hughes poems from the 15 in your collection. Um, they'll both be reprinted on the exam paper and you will choose the um, poem, obviously, that you feel most confident writing about. So you do have it in the exam paper in front of you, but obviously you only have 45 minutes, so you don't want to be spending a lot of time annotating it. Yeah, this is not an unseen poem. You you have read it before. And just so you're aware, um, we have put in the description of this podcast a link to a handout, which I suggest you download now if you haven't done so already, which has the poem, the questions, some key vocabulary, and also some of our notes on the structure of the things we're going to talk about. And it would be very helpful to download that now. Yeah. Definitely. We'll give you some more sophisticated vocabulary to discuss the poetry and also really help you thinking about structuring your essay. Because as you only have 45 minutes, realistically, most of you are probably going to write the equivalent of two sides of A4. Yeah, so I mean, generally we've structured our podcasts around the idea that most students in 45 minutes can write kind of a thesis, an introduction, maybe three paragraphs and, 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 or three sections and a conclusion. Some of you might be able to write more than this. And this is why what we are not trying to provide you here is the only answer of what to say on Harvest moon instead we're trying to model for you the kind of approach you might take to an exam question yeah and i think another thing that's really important which i think my class did find helpful last year is nobody's expecting you to write about everything and there might be parts of some of the ted hughes poems that you actually find quite complicated um definitely the english department still find there are certain phrases we disagree all the time we don't agree or we're not quite sure how to get to the bottom of it so the trick really is to have a range of interesting things to say to focus on the um, interesting powerful imagery that you're confident on and to make sure that you say something across the whole poem that you don't spend the entire time on the first two stanzas so um, a quick note really for our our structure and some of the nomenclature the words that we use Um, I often call an introduction a thesis and that's partly because what I'm trying to encourage people to do at the start of essays is set up an argument not simply tell us what the poem's about but give us a, a, a sense of, of, of why is Teddy's writing what's what are we arguing what, what does he think this poem is actually doing so the question is how does Ted Hughes vividly present the moon in Harvest Moon? Vividly is a very um, Cambridge-style adverb that they, they like to have. Yeah, and the questions often for the poetry will be quite open-ended. And to be honest, if you you know took the title of one poem and replaced it with another, they will often be quite similar. So the important thing is that you just comment on the key things across the whole poem. And so, so the thesis that, we, that we've kind of come up with here, Miss um, Yvonne, you wrote the thesis, would you like to, to read it for us? So, Ted Hughes's moon is both a cause for celebration, representing the transition from summer to autumn, and the harvest, and a more sinister force, reminding us of the magnificence and power of the natural world. So what we've done there is we've set up an overall direction, really. There's two aspects to the moon in this poem. The question's on the moon, and, and, and Miss Simonakis is arguing here that there's both something positive, but also something sinister. And this hopefully already sets up a bit of an essay structure for you. Because whilst you can work through a poem chronologically, stanza by stanza in your analysis, 
often a more sophisticated approach is to look at it more thematically. Um, so what we've done is we, we're going to have a, a section, our first section of our essay, we're going to look at kind of the, the quite light-hearted imagery, the, the playful metaphors at the beginning. Then we're going to look at some of the darker religious apocalyptic imagery before looking at kind of slightly the, the images of fecundity and sexuality that perhaps are running through um, the end of the poem. So we've kind of very much divided it by themes in this essay rather than by chronology. Yeah, and my, my year 10 class might spot the essay that I gave them um, a couple of weeks ago, but what we've done is we've kind of played around with it and reorganised it to make it slightly more effective. Yeah, so let's start, um, so the, the, each paragraph, we want to start a paragraph with, a, with what I call a topic sentence, that is setting up what you're arguing in that, it's like a mini thesis, what do you set arguing in that paragraph? So the, the first one we've got printed on your handout is this, the poem begins with a series of playful conceits which establish the wonder the harvest moon evokes. So conceits just meaning kind of metaphors and extended metaphors. So we've got a series of images that we're going to unpick now um, in, in, this, in this kind of section of our, of our essay. So the first one really that's quite interesting is this image of a vast balloon gently bouncing um, and rolling along the hills. What do you make of that kind of, that, that first um, image? Well, I think firstly, um, it's very gentle compared to um, some of the language that we get later on um, in the poem. Um, uh, and um, apart from the description of the flame red in the moon at the beginning, which is a, a little moment, I think, that foreshadows some of the more sinister imagery later on, um, the image of the balloon is a very kind of childlike, playful, um, joyous one. Really. Yeah, and, like, and we look at the, kind of the, the verbs and adverbs, rolls, yeah. gently yeah. bouncing. Um, this is not a threatening image. This is this is very much, and it's, it's very much kind of a visual metaphor as well, isn't it? Evoking that kind of that shape of the moon slowly um, rising on the horizon. Yeah. Um, in I think September. it underplays the moon's power that we get later on as well, because a balloon is, is quite a fragile thing. Yeah, there's no well. sense of weight or gravity. No, not at all. It's uh, something light. Something, and, and I think it's also quite important that this first um, conceit just dissolves into the next till it takes off and sinks upwards. Immediately we have something different. It's initially a balloon, and then it's perhaps a, a, a wreck sinking into the sea, or as we find out by, um, uh, by, the, by, the, by the next line, um, it's, it's kind of a, a doubloon, a coin at the bottom of, of the sea. And I think it's worth noticing, uh, happens even more in the next... Um, stands, but Hughes is already making quite a lot of use of sound in his poems. So we've got that assonance um, of moon and the doubloon and the balloon, um, which he picks up on even more. And then, um, yeah, um, I mean that. Just to pause for a second, there, that sinking upward um, juxtaposition is quite an interesting one. And I know you know people keep coming up with different explanations for that. So I don't know what your thoughts are yeah, on that I, one, because that tends to cause problems. I mean, my my first thought is always that one of the things that often separates the top essays is um, not simply making an inference about um, an image, not simply saying this shows this, but mm. unpicking why. Let's engage with it. So the idea of um, the moon as a gold doubloon at the bottom of the sky that's sinking upwards, it, it inverts the world in which we live. It, instead, of the, 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 instead of it being high above us, it's suddenly below us. Mm. It's one of an image of vertiginous depth. Um, and I think that it does a couple of things. The first thing from, is that it, 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 it's obviously a simple um, simile. It's a gold coin deep beneath us that we could perhaps see something of value, something of worth, yeah. something that's separated from us. But also it's, um, it kind of like presents the sky with the, with the mystery of the sea, the mystery of the depth, mm. that, that, that it's something kind of that's 
out of our reach. Um, and I think it also, if we're thinking about the first stanza as perhaps having slightly more playful um, language, it has that slight um, connotations of a sort of fairy tale and, you know... A world that's turned upside down. Things. Yeah, which ties into the balloon image a bit too, I'd also say. And also, kind of, it's just that it's, yeah, it's the total inversion. Of the, fir- the first image is one of height, a balloon rising to the sky. The second one is one of depth. In both cases, it's something that's inaccessible, something that's, that's kind of yeah. playful and beautiful, but distant. Absolutely. And both of them, obviously, are connected to the shape of the moon, but one, one has heft or weight and the other one has lightness, um, both of which are relevant, aren't they? In... And then, then in the second stanza, there's something quite interesting with the idea of the, kind of the synesthesia, which is the mixing up of the senses. We've put it on your, on your um, worksheet. But the moon is the movement of the moon is conceived of in musical terms, isn't mm. it? It's booming softly like a bassoon. What do you make of that? I think, I mean, when we were talking about this, I actually played my class a bit of bassoon music. And, it, you know, it, a bassoon is a little bit like a cello. It's one of those instruments that really does reverberate. Deep so you can, actually, you can feel it as well as hear it. It's a sort of physical experience. Um, so it is sound, but it is also yeah, kind of feeling. And I think that's quite important in, um, we're, we're slowly moving, aren't we, to the moon being more powerful. And it's gone from being something that's sort of far, far away. So and it's felt it's in your bones. Physical, yeah. And again, the assonance that I mentioned earlier, you know, booming, bassoon. Um, and I think also we've got the, um, the conversation, it yes. feels like, between um, the bassoon... Um, which is the moon and the earth, which is like the drum. So you've got these two quite primal sounds. Um, well, it's an, it's an orchestral um, metaphor, isn't yeah. it? It's kind of this, this kind of call and response, this musical motif, the idea of the bassoon creating some kind of tune and the, the deep drum, drum responding. It's, it's suggesting some kind of link between the two that, of course, does, in a way, play upon that gravitational relationship that we mm. have with the moon. Um, and I think it's, it's speaking to the relationship between the moon and the earth and the harvest um, that's going to come later on. I also think it's quite interesting that um, the second stanza is a tercet, just three lines. So it's almost as though after that slightly more expansive and playful description that we have in the opening five lines, it's we're kind of focusing and narrowing in just specifically on these sounds here. And yet all of these disparate images are bound together by the sound patterns. I think that's one thing mm. in terms of the effect of the consonants and assonants that people often struggle with and rhyme. Um, we've got moon, balloon, bassoon, doubloon. The, the, there's the sonic texture of the poem, the sounds yeah. of the poem binds these images that are otherwise quite disparate together as all one playful attempt to Absolutely. define what the moon is. And it's still quite, we had gently bouncing, didn't we, in the first stanza, and now we've got booming softly. So although there's a power in the sounds, and they're quite deep sounds, there's still a sense of kind of gentleness at this point, which softness. is something that, softness, it's just something that changes um, later on. And I think this is a great opportunity to talk a little bit about an essay and what we're doing, that if you look at the top um, bands on the mark scheme, it's all about personal response, mm. having an argument, constructing your own ideas. Yeah. And the thing I always bang on about, and my class will be bored of hearing this, is kind of the word essay, where it comes from the idea of trial, this old French mm. word, putting an idea on trial. So um, we've, we've already we've started our trial with this idea that the, the, the imagery is playful and filled with wonder, and now in our second kind of section of our essay, we might put on trial a different idea, which is also there in the poem. So, um, the second topic sentence I went for this. This imagery is, however, then juxtaposed with a language of religious awe and the suggestion that the moon's power is not entirely benign. Yeah. So what does that mean, first of all? What, what's the, what is that topic sentence getting at? What are we trying to argue now? 
Well, I think, I think what it's suggesting is, and I think, you know, it's worth thinking about the word or a bit. We use awesome now just to mean something That's quite awesome. Nice. <laughs> it's awesome. But actually, what it, what it actually means is that it's something so powerful and amazing that you'll be struck dumb with awe. Um, so there's a danger in the thing that you're seeing. Um, so um, I think what we're beginning to see and then we see it right from the beginning, the flame red, which we mentioned earlier, which is mentioned in the notes of this, but it's right from the beginning, there are little hints of the power of the moon being a positive and benign force on the one hand, but also um, perhaps being um, potentially dangerous, which yeah. comes through in the later. So that, red, that flame red yeah. um, is kind of echoed, isn't it, in, in, in kind of red hot in the penultimate stanza, yeah. and the image of, of it sailing closer and closer, like the end of the world again. And, and I think maybe if you're making links back to the first stanza and you're kind of looking for things that might hint at what happens later on, the vastness of the balloon is possibly another place where, you know, the, the, the size of it almost becomes claustrophobic later it's on. It's sublime kind of us, terror. So, yeah. And, and likewise, there's kind of echoes of that playful simile, the gold doubloon, like a, a pirate shipwreck uh, at the bottom of the ocean is then echoed again in that, in that verb sails, that it kind of sails towards us. Suddenly it's no longer some distant yes. wreck, it's now this monstrous thing that's getting closer and closer, um, bringing with it perhaps um, the end of the world, as the, as the penultimate stanza says. And I think, you know, if you look at the other words in the um, penultimate stanza, you've got petrified, um, which obviously you know means extremely frightened, but also has its literal sense of kind of being turned to stone. Um, Something of Medusa in it. Yeah, which you get the sense of these, you know, the people and the animals are just kind of outlined in the moon's kind of silvery light, um, almost like statues. Yeah, and then the trees, the elm and oak trees that keep a kneeling vigil in a religious hush. The, the personification of the trees here, as if they are supplicants come to worship. Yes. The moon, and it reminds us also of the important kind of pre-Christian um, um, kind of symbolism of the moon in, in Greek mythology, um, in Celtic mythology. The lunar deity constantly associated with fertility, with um, you know, typically gendered as, as female, but often you know it is an important kind of deity in, in kind of many different traditions. Well, it's interesting as well. It's the penultimate stanza, I think, is the first time when the moon suddenly becomes female. We have pronoun she, don't we, stare mm. up at her petrified, which we haven't had before. So it kind of She becomes this anthropomorphic figure. Yeah. And, and of course, they're, you know, both um, uh, ancient Greece and ancient Rome had goddesses of the moon as well, who were always female. And we'll, I think we'll touch upon that more in our final section of our essay when we talk about some of the imagery of fertility. But certainly, um, it's, it's no longer a benign force um, by the middle of the poem. The poem. It's now something that has a religious power. You know, the religious hush, the silence of the moon. And I think if you look at the, um, the uh, anaphoric so, uh, the beginning of the first two lines of the third stanza, um, another really useful thing to do um, for any poems, really, particularly later on when you're doing the unseen, but with the Ted users, sometimes if there's a shift or change of tone. It feels like, doesn't it, at the beginning of that um, third stanza, something slightly different is happening. Mm. We've had the various metaphors and similes, and that's right, so people can't sleep, which is a very simple line, isn't it? Yeah, but it implies a logic to it. It implies yes, that actually like people can't sleep because, because of the moon. Absolutely. Um, the, they, go, they go outside because of the moon. Um, which, in fact, I did a few weeks ago. Um, but it implies, doesn't it, the power of the moon that, yes. that, that it has over us? 
And it does play upon long, long-held human superstitions around the moon as well, about its associations, obviously, with menstruation, its associations also with supernatural figures like the werewolf. Yeah. It's long been, long been held in kind of human consciousness, yeah. and this actually connection. The, the word lunatic actually comes from the um, word for the moon as well, this, this idea that we're actually quite connected to the cycles of the moon and they, they affect our states of mind. And so I think it's really important that the kind of in this section of the poem we could we consider really, or this section of our essay, sorry, consider that, that this is something that Teddy's is playing upon, isn't it? He's acknowledging the historic power the moon has over us. Yeah, and, I, and, and the religious lexus in the third stanza is interesting as well. It's almost like they're in a cathedral even though they're outside, so there's that mm. kind of pagan quality um, to it as well, isn't there? Which brings me maybe to our final section, that Hughes's harvest moon also seems a symbol of the fecundity of autumn. So I love the word fecundity. Um, I don't know, I think it's really ugly. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean? It means... Fertility. 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 Um, it Which has... is obviously what the harvest is all about. Yeah, because harvest is the time of plenty. We particularly think to the kind of pre-industrial era, this is the time of year that is the time of plenty. This is the time when yeah. the crops that you've sown in the spring that have grown through the summer are finally being reaped. Um, that you're finally building up your stores for the winter, the times of hardship. It's, a, it's, it's the moment of transition, isn't it? Which historically, I mean, now we're a little bit detached and divorced from that, but historically that was the difference between whether we were going to be able to eat that winter or not. So it was of huge significance whether you had a successful harvest. And the harvest moon comes um, every September, or late August or early September, at the time of the harvest. So it's long been associated with um, with this fecundity and it's certainly kind of going through so if you look at some of the imagery for example we've got um, the imagery of the wheat that's ready to be reaped we are ripe cries the wheat cries this anthropomorphized wheat reap us um, yeah I mean what, what, why do you think he puts the direct speech in there as well because we don't have that anywhere else in the poem we don't have it when there are people in the third yeah. stanza so what do you think is the impact of that I mean it kind of it anthropomorphizes mm. the natural world doesn't it it, yeah. it, ta- it takes um it takes the wheat and makes it into this, this kind of anthropomorphic figure um, crying out to be reaped. Yeah. So as if the world itself desires this change, this, um, this plenty for the people around them. There's also something kind of sexually suggestive about this latter section of the poem, that these words, ripe, reap, I mean, of course, they're, they're slant rhymes, which means that the consonants are the same, but the vowel changes. There is this kind of troubling kind of relationship between the, the wheat and the, the people that are going to yeah. reap them. There's something kind of troubling going on here. It also feels there's a, there's a slight, um, almost kind of hysteria at this point at the end of the poem, isn't it? which has started quite slowly and gently and calmly, and now kind of, you know, pushed into this... There's quite a lot going on suddenly. So we, we, we see the kind of we see the, the speech tag cry. Um, this is what the week's yeah. doing. It's, it's crying out. The rivers are sweating. The hills are melting. Um, this is this is kind of the imagery almost of eroticism of, of the night yeah. time, a, a sweating, melting, hot night. So the weak, the stiff weak crying out. Perhaps People there's something sleep. phallic there. People being awake at night in the in the hot of the late the heat of the late summer. There is something kind of eroticized about this landscape. Um, and we get perhaps that also in the moon. The moon swells, filling heaven. Like obviously, if we look at the historical associations of the moon with um, with menstruation and with um, fertility in, in the figure of kind of Artemis, um, in, 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 uh, we, we've got kind of perhaps an image of pregnancy here, of, of swelling not simply of the, the crops and the harvest, but actually of the moon as this pregnant mother goddess 
bringing new life. You know, it's perhaps a stretch, and you have to use the words like perhaps here, but there is something going yeah. on. And I think that's, that's the important thing, because I think last year um, when we taught this, um, some classes were doing that thing, we're like English teachers making things up. Um, and, and there's always more than one reading. So you can go, it's perfectly okay to go for a simple reading where you talk about the significance of harvest and the fact that the harvest has to be gathered in. Um, but you can, you know, the wonderful thing about poetry is you can say more than one. You can say this, but you say, but you could, you know, it's also clear if we look at the language of this uh, final stanza, you know, that there are words associated with sexuality or whatever it is, and have a little play around with that. You don't have to go for one or the other. Both can it be can true. Be both, and both are true. Because the truth is, we don't know what Ted Hughes intended, and no. almost in a way, it doesn't matter. It's what the poem leaves us with. I mean, I think that might leave us really with quite a nice ending here. Like, our, you know, what is the poem about in our conclusion, really? What we want to avoid is simply restating things we've already said. Mm. And I think I'm like, I mean, some of the other poems that you have studied slash will be studying, like, for example, The Thought Fox, where there's a very definite extended metaphor, and you know it's, you know, it's a poem about creativity and about writing poetry, as well as being you know, a detailed description of a fox. Um, this one is perhaps not quite as straightforward, isn't it? And I think it's so, fine to conclude with words like elusive, yeah. strange... Um, difficult. Those are actually the, the, what Cambridge are ultimately looking for when they're marking. It's, it's this personal response. Yeah. What is your feeling about this poem? Can you pin it down to something or do you think it's just... And you don't have to decide. I think the important thing is if in your thesis statement you can touch on the fact that it is both celebratory and apocalyptic then immediately you're looking at two different aspects of the poem and that's the important thing. I mean and ultimately the thing that's clearly you know clearly there is that the moon has long been associated with cycles of change and with um, you know and that's clearly what the poem's engaging with these moments of shifting from the summer to the autumn from you know uh, bringing about a time of, of plenty before the winter. So that I think is probably enough for today. Yes. Um, so do make sure you've downloaded the handout. Do compare this. If you've written this as a homework, do go back to your essay and have a look. Is there anything else you could add in? Would you have structured your essay the same way if you wrote it again? Yeah, and we are always up for feedback. Um, we've been doing this for a couple of years now, and it's really useful to know um, what things you find particularly helpful, if there are things that you would like added into the podcast. But um, we're certainly planning on covering the rest of the poems. Yeah. yeah.